Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. We've been in a series on the book of Genesis now for some time. And we come today to one of the intriguing portions of the book. It deals with Jacob. Jacob, the father of the 12 sons who were the 12 tribes of Israel. You remember the history of Jacob? That before he was born, God revealed to his mother uh, that she had made a choice, uh, that he had made, God had made a choice between her twins. Uh, it's twin struggle in her womb, and she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said uh, that two nations are in the womb, and I have chosen the uh, younger <clears throat> to uh, be uh, the privileged one. It says, The children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, in order that the purpose of God might stand, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Now, that's Paul's comment on what was revealed to Rebecca. The elder shall serve the younger. The younger will be the privileged one. And really it was a choice, not just of certain temporal privileges, but of salvation. Uh, the one that I will make myself known to, through whom I will carry on uh, the covenant that I've established with Abraham, will be the younger one. That's what was being revealed, says Paul. And uh, we see, as we look at uh, <clears throat> Jacob, his character. Uh, when the children are being born, uh, Jacob's hand came out of the womb and grabbed his brother's heel. Isn't that unusual? But that was significant of his character. And they named him Heel Gripper or Supplanter, Jacob. And the idea is... Uh, manipulator, the one who's trying to overreach and get ahead of the other person. And that was his character, and it begins to demonstrate itself when his brother comes in uh, faint from the hunt, and uh, Jacob has been preparing some food for himself, and his brother says, give me some, and he says, if you'll sell me your birthright, I'll give you some of my pottage. Here he is manipulating, and we see his character. A little later on, he deceives his father and steals the blessing that was to go to his older brother as he impersonates his older brother in front of his blind father, Isaac. Well, here's this person God has chosen that he's going to bring to himself. Here's his character, a manipulator. We have his conversion. A change needs to take place. And uh, as he has to flee from his brother because of his brother's anger at him and stealing this blessing, determination to kill him, as he, as he flees, going to his uncle Laban's home, his mother sending him away, one night God reveals himself. He sees a ladder reaching up to heaven, angels descending and ascending on the ladder, and God speaks from the top of the ladder and says, I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac, 
and I'll be your God. And the land that I have promised Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you as an everlasting possession. I will be your God, and so on. Here's this great covenant promise. And uh, Jacob responds. Jacob says, if you're going to be with me and bless me, uh, then uh, I will, you will be my God. I will serve you. This is his conversion, I believe. Uh, this is when he came to know God in a personal way. Has that happened to you? Have you established a covenant relationship with God? We do that today by faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, in Jesus, as God the Son who died for our sins, puts their trust in him, doesn't just believe it's true, but commits their life in surrender and trust to him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's You are in a covenant relation, that same covenant of grace, whereby God graciously forgives you and promises you a land. See, that land wasn't just an earthly land. That land represented heaven. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't build a permanent home down here because they looked for a city that had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. They looked for a heavenly city. That promise was more than just an earthly land. It was an eternal inheritance. And God makes the same promise to us, uh, that we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That was his conversion. And then he goes on to go to his uncle's home. And here he encounters a man who was shrewder than himself, maybe, more cunning, more of a manipulator. And God begins to work on Jacob through his uncle, who deceives him now in the matter of wives. Uh, he works for Rachel, but uh, at the end of the seven years, his father-in-law deceives him and gives him Leah and then Rachel. Well, <clears throat> we uh, that's the background. He flees from Laban, ultimately, and uh, takes his wives when Laban's Anger begins to be kindled against him because God has blessed him in spite of Laban's manipulations. As he's fleeing from Laban, and Laban overtakes him, and they come to terms, but now he's going on back to the land of Canaan, and God has told him to do that. Suddenly, a new crisis arises, and that's where we are in this 32nd chapter. Verse 6. Esau, uh, Jacob sends messengers to his brother Esau. And these messengers return, verse 6. The messengers return to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid. Last time he'd seen Esau, Esau had vowed to kill him. That had been years before, but looks like Esau's attitude hadn't changed. Uh, very ominous what these men report, a, a real crisis. Here he has his family, uh, all of his children, and 400 armed men are coming with Esau to meet them. Well, he takes care to try to protect his family 
in uh, verse 7, the last part, he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands and said, If he saw come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And this is proper to try to protect ourselves as best we can as long as we are not trusting in our strategy, but we're trusting in God as we use strategy. Then he prays in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said to me, Return to thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good. And make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You know, we can learn a lot about praying from the way these men prayed. Notice how he prays here, the content of his prayer. He reminds God of his specific promise. Verse 9. He said, The Lord which said to me, Return unto thy country, and I will do thee good. God, you said for me to go back, and you promised you would be with me, and you would do me good. Uh, when you've got a problem, a financial problem like Pete mentioned, whatever problem we're facing, if we can find a specific promise in the Word of God that applies to that, we need to plead that promise. God, I've got a financial problem. You said... Uh, not to be anxious about what I would wear or what I would eat, that you clothe the fields and you'll clothe me, but to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and all these things would be added, that my heavenly Father knows I have need of such things. You said that. Now I have sought to put first your kingdom, and I ask that you would meet my needs. We're always on good grounds. God, I need wisdom. You said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And it will be given him. We're always on good grounds if we can find a specific promise and plead that promise. Again, <clears throat> the recognition of his unworthiness and God's blessing. God, I'm not deserving of any of these things. That's good approach in prayer. Nothing could be truer. If we got our deserts, we'd have been in hell long ago. Always good to remember that. God, I'm not deserving of the least of your mercies. And look how you have blessed me. And it's always good to review our blessings when we go before God. Again, uh, his request for deliverance. You notice he doesn't uh, mumble around when he gets to the what he wants, does he? People say, well, you know, when I pray, I don't ask God for anything. I'm just so glad to talk to him. Well, that's nice. He wanted something. He said, Lord, deliver me. It's good to let the Lord know exactly what you'd like him to do. Lord, by the way, Esau's coming to meet me with 400 men. And I thought I'd mention that while I was praying. Uh, tell him what you want him to do. 
And he's very specific. <clears throat> and he gives his reason, the mother and the children. Lord, my children are in this situation. He reminds God of his general covenant promise. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. That was a general covenant promise that God had entered into when he made his covenant with him. And he reminds him, and God is in a covenant with you. God, you said you would be my God and I would be your servant. And you would do me good. You would bless me. Bless me in this current situation. Now, uh, we see an approach to prayer. Then he seeks to conciliate his brother through gifts. In verse 13, he lodged there the same night and took of that which came to his hand a present, for he saw his brother. Two hundred she-goats, twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes, twenty rams, thirty milked camels, and so on. He delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove by themselves. And he said to his servants, Pass over before me, put a space betwixt drove and drove, so that uh, as his servants go, they'll arrive with these she-goats, and then the he-goats, and first group. And when they come to Esau, he said, What is these? Well, these are present from your brother Jacob. And no, long, no sooner has he gotten those, and the next group arrives, and the next group arrives, seeking to conciliate. Uh, Matthew Henry says, Jacob, having made God his friend by a prayer, is here prudently endeavoring to make Esau his friend by present. Well, I said manipulation again. This is just using means. It would be presumption not to try to use means. Uh, suppose David, going out to fight Goliath, hadn't taken his sling. He just walked out there not using any means, saying, God, strike him with a thunderbolt. Would that have been proper? It would sure been trust in the Lord, wouldn't it? Walk out there to meet Goliath, God, strike him with a thunderbolt. Now, David wasn't presumptuous. He used every means he could. He wasn't relying on the means. He's relying on the Lord while he used means. And that's what his, Jacob is doing here properly. The conflict with God. In verse 24, this comes to the very interesting part. Jacob was left alone. He sends his wives and, over, and others over across the river at Ford Jabbok. And uh, verse 24, Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Hmm. Here Jacob is all by himself, builds a little fire, sits by it, meditating on what's going to happen. All of a sudden, out of the darkness comes his hand. This guy grabs him on the shoulder, wheels him around, jumps on him. Who is this? Who's this man? Is it Laban come back? Is it Esau? Is it one of Esau's men? And they wrestle in the darkness, struggling desperately. And only gradually does his assailant reveal himself. Only gradually does Jacob realize that he's wrestling with God, literally God taking human form. You find that a number of times in Scripture, God takes human form before he actually became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. This may well be the second person of the Trinity, a Christophany, certainly a theophany, an appearance of God in human form, a real man, uh, God in human form, 
wrestling, a real wrestling match, desperate. And yet, it's God. And the significance is, Jacob, in praying to God, is wrestling with God. And we're having the internal, spiritual, being pictured by God in an external way. Jacob is wrestling with God as he pleads with him to deliver him from Esau. And uh, he's, in a sense, he's wrestling by faith and by uh, supplication, weeping. Uh, but he's wrestling with God. And prayer is wrestling with God. P.T. Forsyth, uh, the British theologian, in his book, The Soul of Prayer, uh, says this. He said, We say too soon, thy will be done. And too ready acceptance of a situation as his will often means feebleness or sloth. It may be his will that we surmount his will. It may be his higher will that we resist, resist his lower will. Suppose Esau, just, I mean, Jacob just said, well, here comes Esau. I guess it's the will of God that I get killed. Thy will be done. No, that's not right. Prayer is not merely the meeting of two moods or two affections, the laying of the head on a divine bosom in trust and surrender. That may have its place in religion, but it's not the nerve and soul of prayer. Prayer is an encounter of wills until one will or the other give way. It is not a spiritual exercise merely, but in its maturity, it's a cause acting on the course of God's world. Prayer can change the will of God, or if not his will, his intention. It may, like other human energies of godly sort, take the form of resisting the will of God. Resisting his will may be doing his will. Of course, there's always, behind all, the readiness to accept God's will without a murmur when it's perfectly evident and final. Now, well, Jacob is wrestling with God, and this is being pictured very vividly here for us. God is wrestling with Jacob. Notice who the aggressor is. Who jumps on who? God leaps out of the dark. Who got, who got Jacob in this situation? Who provoked this crisis? It was God who told him to go back to his kindred and so on. God has brought this crisis about. He is the aggressor. God had been wrestling with Jacob for years. Jacob is a true believer. He's converted when God makes himself known and enters into covenant with him. But as all true believers, Jacob has an awful lot of rough spots that need knocking off. And God's been wrestling with him for years, breaking his self-will, but Jacob has been resisting. And now we have vividly pictured the other side of this wrestling match, God wrestling with Jacob. And the conflict is brought to a head now. Notice how God prevails, verse 25. And when he, God, saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. A doctor will tell you that the strongest part of the human body is that thigh muscle. And uh, this man, as he wrestles with Jacob and cannot overcome him, 
suddenly reaches down and touches that thigh muscle and his, his thigh now is out of joint. You ever try to rustle with a, with a leg out of joint or with a slipped disc or something? My goodness. And we pick up here that in this man wrestling, there's an awesome reserve of power that he's not using. Uh, <clears throat> Jacob says, God, you have got to save me. You've got to deliver me. You've got to bless me. And God says, Jacob, you've got to yield. You've got to yield to me. Then I'll bless you. Uh, the paradox that God couldn't overcome, says Alexander McLaurin, yet he could, by touch of his hand, cripple Jacob. Uh, if his finger could do that, what could his grip do? If he chose to put out his power, it's not lack of strength on God's part here that he hasn't crushed Jacob, but it's the striving of a power that doesn't want to crush his opponent, he wants his opponent to yield, willingly yield. He desired to conquer in that way. Now, that laming of Jacob's thigh, remember this is really picturing for us a spiritual struggle. What would that laming of his thigh picture? It pictures the breaking of his natural inclination to always, by his cunning and by his shrewdness, deliver himself. A weakening of the self-life really getting at the core of that. That's what God is doing here, and that's what is pictured by this uh, placing his thigh out of joint. Uh, this is a transaction in Jacob's life and character from reliance upon self and craft to reliance upon his divine antagonist turned his friend, says McLaurin. And it's the path by which we must all travel to grow spiritually. Once you're a Christian, God is wrestling with you, and he's wrestling with you so that more and more that self-life will die. Uh, where you want your own way, where you rely on your own ability, more and more that will be put to death. More and more the life of nature and dependence on self must be broken and lamed in order that we may grasp God's hand who's wrestling with us and draw on his power I find his power flowing into us uh, when we realize our own weakness and rely on him. In uh, verse 25, when God saw that he prevailed not, he touched the thaw of his, the of his thigh. The hall of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, God said, let me go for the day breaketh. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. You notice the change here? Jacob has been kicking and fighting against God. Now he's clinging. He won't let him go. He's no longer fighting him. He's clinging to him in dependence. And Jacob prevails by surrendering and clinging. <clears throat> After the maiming, his combativeness has turned to just a dogged clinging independence. Make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer a bee. 
He overcomes by clinging, by persevering. I will not let it go except thou bless me. <clears throat> Why couldn't God loose himself if he can if he can touch the thigh there and knock it out of joint? Surely he could loose himself, right? But he doesn't want to loose himself. He wants to bless Jacob. And he wants Jacob to cling and request and not turn loose. And then he will bless him. McLaren says, all God's struggles with us aim at developing this desire. I won't let you go unless you bless me. He delights to be held by the hand of faith and gladly yields to, I will not let thee go unless thou bless me. In verse 27, he said unto him, God said unto Jacob, What is thy name? He said, Jacob, heel, supplanter, manipulator. He said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, prince with God. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. This change of name uh, pictures the change in his character that's been wrought through this process. And as we look at this, the crucial question for us is, have we been similarly changed? Has God brought you to some crisis in your life where he really got at that self-life and changed you in a lasting way? That happened to me. That happened to me after I became a Christian. And the crisis in my life was my marriage. And God was wrestling with me, and God got me in a corner where my wife was so depressed that I honestly thought she was going to kill herself. And I tried to help her. I said, shape up. And that didn't seem to help. And I read every book I knew to read, and I prayed, and she just got more depressed. And the depression was from living with me. And then I picked up a little book entitled Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. It had a chapter in there entitled Revival in the Home. Anybody here need that? I said, man, I need that. And I read that, and all he did in that chapter was take 1 Corinthians 13... Love is long-suffering and kind. It isn't jealous or envious or haughty or boastful or proud. It isn't irritable or touchy. It doesn't hold grudges. It doesn't demand its own way. Hardly notices when others do it wrong and applied it to a husband-wife relationship. And I said, no wonder she's depressed. I've been the opposite of that. I haven't loved my wife with that kind of love. And that's what God wants from me. He wants me to start loving my wife with that kind of love. And I can't do it. I can't do it in my own strength. I've got to have God change me in order to do that. And that's when my life began to change. He didn't change my name, but praise God, he changed me. That's what it's all about. I was already a Christian, but that self-life was so strong. And I hadn't learned to rely on him till I came to an end of my own resources where I couldn't change the situation. No matter what I did, it didn't get any better. Anybody there?
Well, the momento in verse 31. And as he passed over Penuel, uh, the sun rose upon him. Well, verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. He limped. Huh. That was a lasting proof that this wasn't a dream. Rest of his life, he limped. Uh, there was sharp judgment in God's dealing with him, but there was blessing. Suppose we see Jacob the next day, and here he comes along limping, and, and uh, we say, gosh, he's all beat up, you know. We say, Jacob, what happened to you? He said, God bless me. <laughs> Amen. God does bless us. It's painful, but it's a blessing when God wrestles with you and defeats you and you cling to him and say, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Well, when his brother arrives, look what happens. Verse 4 of chapter 33. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Classic reconciliation when they meet. I don't believe that's the attitude Jacob started out with. I mean, that Esau started out with. I believe when Jacob surrendered to God. God overcomes Jacob and clings to God, and God blesses that Esau's attitude was changed. God may well have used the gifts, but it's God who made the change. He delivered Jacob. What's your crisis? Do you realize it's designed by God? God is wrestling with us. Yield to him so he won't have to cripple you. Maybe you've never made that initial yielding, that initial surrendering, entering into covenant, receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the starting place if you haven't done that. And we need more hold fast praying. Lord, I won't let you go unless you bless. That's prayer. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, are you in a crisis? Is God wrestling with you? Have you yielded to him? Are you clinging to him? Have you ever entered into that covenant, made that initial surrender? If not, start there. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for your death for me. I do surrender to you and trust you as my Savior. Come into my life. Amen.